Jed Levine, give me a name. Jane Jacobs. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. Subscribe to Jed's YouTube channel, Late Bloomers, about turning a backyard into a food-producing permaculture garden. Link in the episode description. But before watching how gardens are made, listen to a light chat of how cities are ruined. Okay, I am here with Jed Levine, who is going to talk about, we're going to talk about cities today and what makes them work and what makes them not work. Full disclosure, this is also my dear cousin, Jed Levine. This is the second family member that has been on Give Me a Name. I feel like uh, we're cheating the system here. We're getting we're cutting to the front of the line. It's nice. <laughs> it feels good. No, not at, not at all. This would have been the exact same uh, whether we were related or not related. This is not nepotism in any way. Okay, great. As long as there's no nepotism involved, I'm here for it. Because Jane Jacobs would not stand for nepotism. Absolutely not. She would be picketing that immediately. Immediately. And that's... She'd write a book about it, and she would start that book with, this is an attack on the nepotism of the podcast industry. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess if she were alive in 2022, she would have run out of things to talk about, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about her as a, as a person is she had her shtick or her the thing that she's best known for, which is like critiques of, of urban planning and urban policy. But she always found different things to... She was, she was a true journalist in the sense that like, she was interested by so many different topics and so many different things. And to the end of her life, she spoke about any of them, sometimes lesser qualified than other times, but uh, she was never afraid to get out there on a topic and do things. So I guarantee you in 2022, she would have so many thoughts about COVID and Zoom and modern life and Amazon Prime and everything. <laughs> Jane Jacobs was born on May 4th, 1916 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I did hear one podcast that made the joke that it was the same place that Biden was born and the same year, which, of course, is just a fun <laughs> little bit. <laughs> so growing up in a city, but not a huge city, and most of her works are about, you know, New York City and then later on Toronto. Yeah, I mean, she did. She grew up during the Great Depression. That was a really formative experience for her and people of her generation. And she did what a lot of people did, which is they had to move. They had to find work. They had to find the places where stuff was happening. Scranton was a coal city, and it was in the beginning of decline at that time. And so when she was a very young woman, she, she did what a lot of people in Scranton did, which was moving to the closest big city where there were more opportunities. And in her case, that was New York. And it seems like her family was sort of upper middle class. Dad was a doctor. Yeah, definitely wasn't born poor. <laughs> um, I don't think they were they were fabulously wealthy, but she certainly had a lot of opportunities. Um, I know she had some lineage that goes back even to like daughters of the American Revolution. So so some some lineage that goes way back in U.S. history. But yeah, I think they were not for want in this world. I think they she was able to as much as she wanted to get an education. She actually stopped relatively early in her career for someone of her intelligence and intellect and, and ambition. Um, she. Uh, she stopped relatively early, but I think she was, I would say, solidly middle class. <laughs> I saw a few things where it was like the example of someone who was bored in school. I mean, until later on when she goes to Barnard for a little bit, 
that she wasn't particularly good in school because it was just, you know, sort of dull to her. That, very true. And I think um, that's maybe something that I see a little bit of myself in, in her. <laughs> I also was not super satisfied in school. I loved learning. I loved knowing things. I loved observing things. But the idea of living in a system was hard for me. And I like her entire life is sort of this like fight for independent thought and being free from structures and things that people force on her. And I love there was like, I think it was her biographer talked about when she was very young in grade school, she got suspended, temporarily suspended, because they wanted her to do a pledge to brush her teeth. All the students were asked to pledge to brush their teeth. And she brushed her teeth every day. She didn't care. It wasn't a, like a principled stance on teeth brushing. It was a principled stance on pledges that she was like, no, I'm not going to take that pledge. I refuse. <laughs> and she got suspended from school for it. So she was causing trouble from a, an early age. Some would say good trouble, I think. I think good trouble. <laughs> Did you have any moments like that in school where just taking a stance? Oh, I was a very stubborn, very, very stubborn child. My parents still have saved my kindergarten, <laughs> a kindergarten feedback from my kindergarten teacher. Keep in mind, this is five years old kindergarten. <laughs> and her words about me were, Jed, something like believes very strongly in his beliefs. And once he has set them, he does not want to change. Them. <laughs> it was just like a really sweet way of saying he's stubborn as fuck. And this child needs to maybe chill out a little bit. And I think I did. I chilled out probably more than, than Jane did. <laughs> I think it might be in the blood because my famous story, which you might know, is that in fourth grade, I believe, they made a rule that everyone had to walk in line to the school buses at the end of the day. And for whatever reason, they did this, by the way, because like some kid broke his arm and like the chaos of going like it was totally legitimate. And for some reason, I thought that was the biggest injustice and taking away of our freedoms that I ran to the bus and staged a sort of a demonstration I, I, yeah i don't know i don't know what it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like isn't that great when you're a kid when like that's your biggest problem is i don't want to walk in a straight line to the bus and you're like this is this is what civilization is hinging upon it's not right it's not right it's, so it's, i think if it's that not right, it's not right i'm with you i'm 100 percent with you i'm glad you staged a demonstration so there's a lot of Jacobs in the Levine Kirschenbaum genetics. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's push forward. Sure. <laughs> she moves to New York and she does go to school for a little while. She moves with her sister and mm -hmm. she ends up in Greenwich Village pretty quickly. Yeah, she lands in Greenwich Village and that is sort of the place that I would say, other than Toronto later in her life, I mean, that's the place where most of her most, I would say, important work happens and where she's known for. And where, I mean, really her like love affair with this idea of organic, urban, older style cities solidifies because Scranton, you know, is a small city. It's it's fairly decentralized in its design. And New York was kind of her first real taste of that, of that kind of living. And even now, Greenwich Village is very different from the rest of New York. It does. It's very neighborhoody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has a lot of elements that kind of show up in her work. One of the big themes of the more like modernist view that happened of urban design versus hers was this idea of super blocks. This idea that sidewalks were bad and streets were bad because streets are where crime happens and streets are busy and crowded and no one wants them. And so we need to have these giant super blocks. And for Jane, I think it was like living in Greenwich Village. I mean, you know Greenwich Village. It's like the blocks are tiny. Some blocks are like 100 feet long, maybe 150 feet. I mean, they're really small blocks. And to her, that was a feature, not a bug. 
that's what made Greenwich Village so special. And you go uptown in Manhattan and everything changes. The blocks get much longer, they get much wider, at least from east to west. And I think for her, that was just a big aha moment of just, wow, it's so amazing when you increase the surface area of your blocks, essentially, which is what smaller blocks do. It means that there's more street, there's more sidewalk, there's more space for people to bump into each other and have these wonderful, she talks about like the idea of the sidewalk ballet or the ballet of the sidewalk, which is such a beautiful, I just think that's such a beautiful expression. And it's true. It's like you go to those kinds of places and that happens. And when you are in these places with super blocks, you don't have that ballet because everything's separated. Everything, residence is separated from business, is separated from industry. And so you don't get this beautiful mishmash of things happening. And so I think Greenwich Village is absolutely integral. I think if she had moved to another part of New York, I, I don't think her philosophy would have changed entirely. But I do think that that focus on the idea of sidewalks, small blocks, not super blocks, is a direct result of her landing in Greenwich Village as opposed to somewhere else. And when she talks about like a city working, I think when I was doing research on this, what I had trouble with, I understand that there are certain metrics about a city, you know, safety and and stuff like that, that makes sense. But what does she kind of mean by a good city, like a city that's well organized and well built? So I think a big part of what she thinks makes a good city is a city that's not well organized, or at least is not organized at a macro level, which I think is a really cool notion. Just to backtrack a little bit, part of how I got into even know who Jane Jacobs is, is I was like an urban planning fanatic as a child. My parents would go to uh, the, they go to the local AAA and they'd have free maps there. Like before, this is before Google Maps existed. We're talking like the 90s. And while they were doing things, I would just go and steal all of the maps. Like, I'm not even joking. They'd have eight maps deep of a city. I would take them all. I would go home and then I would use Sharpie or pens and I would draw transit systems on those maps. So I've been an urban planning nerd since straight out of the womb. How old are we talking with the maps? How, oh, how old are we? with the maps, I mean, since I, probably like seven, eight years old is maybe my first memories of like, <laughs> it was concerning. My parents were very concerned. And quite frankly, if I had had Google Maps, what kids have today, I don't think I would have left the house. I would have just become, <laughs> I would have just been like, sweet, well, this is what life's about. I'm just going to sit here on Google Maps all day long, just discovering the world, designing transit systems, redesigning urban areas. Because that's what I love. Anyway, but getting back to um, your question. Sorry, so I guess my track of that was I didn't discover Jane until college. So I was an urban planning nerd, but this is back when, when you were a nerd. The internet was kind of new. It wasn't super easy to find... Like now, if a kid coming up today is an urban planning nerd, they're going to learn Jane Jacobs' name, name in a heartbeat. Then it wasn't so simple. But I was an urban planning minor in college. And so that was when I first was exposed to her through her, her kind of seminal book, which was The Life and Death, or The Death and Life of, of Great American Cities. I always say it wrong. Every time I say the book's title, I get it wrong. The Death and Life of Great American <laughs> Cities. I'm literally looking at my copy of this book because I, I haven't read it in 15 to 18 years. So I just reread it for this podcast. Anyway, that was my first exposure to her. And I remember one of the things that I thought was, that still stuck with me after all this time, was when she talked about systems of order and how when you look at any complex organism from the perspective of a layperson, every complex organism looks like unintelligible, right? If I, me looking at a jet engine, if you asked me to describe what makes it work, I couldn't tell you, right? Because I'm not an engineer. I don't know how jet engine works. I don't know how a human body works. I'm not a doctor or a physiologist or whoever would know, whatever profession <laughs> understands how the human body works. I don't, I don't even know the profession that would know. I don't even know. The point is I'm a moron. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, but the idea is with systems of order, 
if you your job is to understand it, you'll make sense of it. Like you will. So it's like the people who understand the city are the people who are studying it, observing it, living in it. And so to her, it's like a great city is not understandable at a distance. You shouldn't be able to just show up and be like, I get this city. It makes perfect sense. In fact, I think she would even say that city is dead. Any city that you can understand, which was a huge part of the conflict between her and like Moses and all of these other people from the decentralist movement and the modernist movement that were trying to create cities that were easily understandable, that were super easy. It was like, here is the residential area. Here is the commercial area. Here are the public, you know, they were trying to make it into an organized thing. And her point of view was, you're killing that city. You're destroying the life in that city. A good city should be incomprehensible from a distance. But once you get into it, you can see all of the ways that it works, right? If you're an expert and you're watching it, you see all of the complex interactions that happen. So I think that's one part of it. And I think the other thing she would say is cities are about neighborhoods. A city is a bunch of little mini cities put together. And what makes a city tick and what makes a city so resilient as opposed to like Scranton, which is where she grew up, Scranton as a small city... Uh, is essentially like one or two or like a handful of neighborhoods, let's say. So if an industry falters or something goes wrong, there's not a lot of other neighborhoods that can absorb that and like people can seek refuge in and people can find new jobs in, etc. But in a city like a New York or any other great city, you have all of these different neighborhoods and they all have diversity, diversity of people, diversity of industry, diversity of a class, everything that you can imagine that makes a city great. And so that helps to keep make the city more resilient because if an industry falters, if the, if the garment industry falters, that's one neighborhood in a city of hundreds of neighborhoods that are each in and of themselves like vibrant organisms. But even so, even though the neighborhoods are vibrant organisms, they're still connected. So if your neighborhood goes through hard times, you're still connected to all these other neighborhoods that aren't going through hard times where there is job opportunity, where there are public spaces, there are things for you. So I think that was a big part of her too, was the idea that a good city, what makes a great city is probably one that looks pretty chaotic at the macro level, but that has a certain ordered sense, organic sense at the micro level when you look at it close up. And a city that is made up of robust neighborhoods where the neighborhoods kind of drive the city, basically. And she gets into it in kind of a circuitous way. I mean, she you mentioned it before, she's a journalist by trade. In 1952, she works for a publication called America with a K. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, it was a U.S. government uh, publication in Russia. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like a State Department publication that was kind of like promoting, you could say, like American ideals in Russian. And that was like her first bigger gig. She had done some writing. She wrote for like the women's pages. I also think it's an interesting thing about her is she was a female journalist at a time when that was not super common or even like expected. And she rose through the ranks and became a successful journalist and book writer at a time where that was pretty hard to do. And so I think that was a big part of it. Getting her job with America was kind of like her first big career boost and it set her up on track to go to Architectural Forum. But yeah, that was interesting too because that's like we're getting into the McCarthy years and she's such a funny character that Jane Jacobs' politics are honestly like almost incomprehensible, especially at mo by modern standards because uh, there are people who claim she was a diehard libertarian. I don't think that's true, but I think you can interpret some of her words as libertarian. There are people who think she's a communist because of her points of view about community and about the way that communities interact and are organisms that support each other. I don't think she was a communist either. In fact, she very clearly said she was not. 
and you could see her as an anti-capitalist. You could also see her as a deeply pro-capitalist, pro-free market person. So her politics were kind of all over the place. However, I do think in the 50s, being a woman writer who also was like speaking truth to power, I think it read as kind of communist. And I do think there were some undertones there that made her want, uh, want to or have to leave America. I don't recall exactly uh, what were the circumstances where she left. I think she would have had to deal with some issues of being on, on lists, let's say, for, for some of her her points of view. And it definitely seems like, especially when Death and Life of Great American Cities comes out, that she's getting your standard sexist criticism of who are you to write this type of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, right off the bat, they're pigeonholing her as a housewife, which is hilarious because she is, but she's also an accomplished journalist. What I think is genius about her, or at least I think is a very pro move, let's say, is she does that fun jujitsu thing where you use your enemy's attempts to discredit you against them. And so on the one hand, what a lot of people, including Robert Moses and you know all of the made, basically every major architecture critic at the time, were trying to pigeonhole her as just some mom and housewife who was rabble rousing, even though she was obviously like a very accomplished writer and a very keen observer, is she turned that to her favor. And so like what a lot of this came up as is, yeah, these are regular people standing up against the big powers. And that narrative is much stronger, right? If they had just portrayed her as some egg-headed writer, oh, this is just some egg-headed writer who's bringing her highfalutin thoughts to like this and whatever, I think they might have actually been more successful against her because it's harder to get on the side of an elite upper middle class, almost honestly, almost upper class at that point in her life, egghead writer than it is to go up against just a mom who's just telling it like it is very Sarah Palin like I'm just a mom trying to do my best for my little my little bear cubs you know but like you know what I mean like I feel like that the combination of her intellect and her experience with that image as like just a housewife actually really worked in her favor of getting the community on her side you know she was working with a lot of people this wasn't like a solo thing most of her advocacy was in step with a lot of folks she was just the messenger she was a very good writer but as a messenger you kind of can't do much better than someone who comes across as a little folksy and regular especially if you're going up against someone like robert moses who's the incarnation of big government projects coming in demolishing neighborhoods and erecting housing projects and freeways it was kind of like they set her up to be successful at that so let's talk about Robert Moses for a second. Let's talk about Robert Moses. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is sort of under the radar, one of the most powerful people that has ever lived in America. And for a long time, he and Jane Jacobs lived very long lives. And their general theories on how a city should work are around for decades. I really wish, I wish they had Twitter. I wish they had lived long enough for Twitter. <laughs> Because I feel like both of them would have been so good at just sniping at each other. If they had lived really long lives and could have just, to the day they died, just like sniped at each other, I would have relished to read Oh, it would have been re- remarkably mean. Rem- <laughs> I mean, so, so mean. Hey, Robert, how's that lower Manhattan expressway coming along? <laughs> anyway. Sorry. Moses never elected to office. He once ran for governor and was creamed. Having said that, he held basically every position other than mayor in New York that had any sort of power. And you were mentioning about sort of her rivals and their opinions on what to do with cities. What's Moses's big thing when it comes to urban renewal? Sure. So Moses is just like, if you could come up with a textbook example of like, wrong, 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 that's Robert Moses. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, He is like the perfect boogeyman 
to everything Jane, more or less Jane believed in, and we now know with the benefit of a lot of experience and observation, he's the embodiment of everything wrong with urban planning. Because his whole point of view is you can macro engineer cities. First of all, that's his idea is like, it is absolutely possible to completely macro engineer a city. And on top of that, you could make an, a fair argument that, that that's not necessarily wrong, that like it's possible to macro engineer because there were a lot of great urban planners and engineers who designed beautiful cities. You know, Hausmann's Paris is a pretty stunning example of kind of horrifying re regeneration. You know, they basically demolished half of Paris and rebuilt it. But it's, you know, you could argue that's a pretty successful version of it. So you could argue that like that view is right. But the problem was all of his views of what makes a great city were just so wrong. It's the opposite of what you had with Hausmann or any of these other great city builders, where his idea is, first of all, you take millennia of experience that says diversity is good, combination of uses is good, right? You have all of the oldest cities in the world. You've got industrial uses, commercial uses, residential uses, recreational uses. They're all mixed together, essentially. Like, yes, there's some districts that are more financial or districts that are more whatever, but the idea being that a city thrives when you can walk out your door and buy all of your groceries within a couple blocks of your house and you can get to work relatively easily. It doesn't take a million hour commute to get there, right? Like really simple things that I think anyone today would say, yeah, that, that sounds pretty nice. That sounds like a city I'd want to live in. And his point of view was basically like, no, that's wrong. What we really need to do is re-engineer cities to be everything separate. So your housing is set in a park. So you have homes that are set in the park offset from the street so that at minimum, it's going to be a five to 10 minute walk to get to your closest grocery store and it, let alone to your office, which is going to hopefully be in a completely different district from where you live or your, or, your, or your work, which will be completely separate from where you live. He did not like the idea of, you know, old New York, where it's like, you know, our, our grandfather worked in pleating and smocking in Midtown, right? And it's like his factory, you had garment factories next to homes, above homes, below homes, you know what I mean? Like everything was just mixed together there. And to Robert Moses, that was bad and wrong and had to be fixed. And I think now we recognize, no, that's actually a pretty healthy way for a city to live, to have those mix of uses. So that's number one. And then number two was just his obsession with automobiles and the fact that he was a huge fucking racist. I don't know how else to say it. Robert Moses was... Yet. Was absolutely a, a, an awful, awful racist. He had horrible views of the poor. He, I mean, he would constantly refer to, and a lot, to be fair, a lot of urban planners at the time were big racists. Um, so he wasn't unique in that. But his view of slums was that they were cancers on cities. And I think that, that a lot of that was racially coded. And also we're talking the 1950s and 60s. So racist also includes like racist towards Italians and other, you know, people that today might be considered white, but then were not. But definitely black people, definitely Puerto Ricans, definitely every other immigrant group in New York. He had a huge, huge grudge against them. And so I think you can't make good decisions if you're doing that. And so a lot of his stuff was basically this paternalistic view that like immigrants and poor people and brown people and black people are too dumb or too, too poor to understand what's good for them. And we need to tell them how to live. And even if they fight us all the way, they'll be grateful in the end. And so I think that combined with his love of automobiles and the automobile at that time was definitely a symbol of white uh, independence. That's what it was. Like the automobile was a way for wealthy white people to get out of the city, to get away from all these immigrants, to get away from these slums, to live in the suburbs, but still have access to all of the wonderful amenities of the city, right? They didn't want to actually get away. They still wanted to be able to go into the city to have culture, to have recreation, to have jobs but they didn't want to ride trains with all the poor people, so they had to have cars. And so a huge part of his legacy is just completely destroying huge swaths of New York City in order to build freeways, uh, highways at the time, 
Um, the South Bronx Expressway completely eviscerated the South Bronx. I mean, they're still suffering the consequences of that. Most of the expressway system in New York City was under Moses or the parkway system. And there's, you know, a lot of anecdotes that out there about him. I don't even know if this one's true. It feels true, but it's also like, it could be false, that the height of the bridges on his uh, parkways was set so that buses could not pass under them, so that like public buses couldn't pass under them, so that you could basically prevent anyone who doesn't own a car from using those those roads. And whether or not it is true, I, I, I can't say. It certainly feels true. It's definitely <laughs> something he would do. Like, he would do that. He would absolutely do something that shitty because that's just who he was. But I also think it's interesting because I think without Robert Moses, I don't know that Jane Jacobs would be as well known as she is today. I do think that every David needs a Goliath, right? Every underdog needs an overdog. I don't know what an underdog That's right. That's right. Definitely an overdog. Yeah, every obviously the classic (laughs) idiom, every underdog needs an overdog. And Robert Moses was her overdog. It was she she would have been a successful writer without him for sure, because there were plenty of big bullies and, and people to snipe in urban planning. But the personalization of that fight as between this mom, this this housewife from Greenwich Village against the biggest, baddest, neighborhood-destroying racist in New York City was definitely made everything more dramatic and, and gave her more of a higher profile. And there's one main event that really pits the two of them against each other in a very direct way, where basically Moses wants to, you said that like freeways and expressways is one of his big things. He wants to build one that connects the Holland Tunnel to both the Manhattan Bridge and Williamsburg Bridge. It's a very ambitious plan. And if you know New York geography or Manhattan geography at all, this would cut through a lot of the storied neighborhoods of Manhattan. It would also make commute times super short. So I'm sure there's people listening who are like, wow, that sounds great. It's you kind of, that. yeah, there is. <laughs> listen, I've driven on Houston. <laughs> it's, it's not pleasant. You're like, listen, Robert Moses is not a monster, all right? If he could have built this freeway, it might have been nice. So Jacobs obviously is a, a major opponent of this. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, Jane Jacobs as an activist, what's interesting is, so she starts as a writer and a journalist. And obviously she's always been a bit of a, provocateur let's say she's she's never been afraid to like buck the system and so you know she started working for architectural forum in the early 50s and this is at a time when architecture was not so closely associated with urban planning but she got some assignments i think her first big one was philadelphia where she got to really see some of these like urban renewal projects slum slum renewal whatever you want to call it projects in person and through her own eyes was just like this is wrong she just said this doesn't work there's something very wrong here. And that sort of started her on her path to becoming this voice for a different approach to urban planning. But that took a little while. And she didn't really become an activist until probably, I would say, shortly before The Death in Life came out because that was the first big fight was around Washington Square Park. So before we get to the expressway, Robert Moses had a plan to extend Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park. And that had been something that had been proposing for a while. And um, as any New Yorker knows, you know, Washington Square Park now is like considered sacred ground. But at the time, you know, it wasn't abnormal to take a park and throw an expressway through it or a highway or a road. Like that's just, that's the kind of shit Robert Moses did because he cared more about moving cars through the city than people. And so that was something that she jumped on board with as kind of like one of her first big campaigns. And again, she didn't lead it. She jumped on that campaign. And that was kind of her first tete-a-tete with Robert Moses, but obviously she wasn't the leader at the time. Then Death and Life comes out, 
And in it, she directly calls out Robert Moses. And he was, there's a lot of record that he was super pissed by the book. He actually read it, which I think is crazy to me that it's like, it's basically, I mean, the book is 300, how many pages is it? I'm looking right now. 442 (laughs) pages. And it's literally just, it's a burn book. It's literally a burn book against Robert Moses and everything he stands for. And he's not the only, you know, it's also against... Le Corbusier and, and everyone else at the time that was kind of es- es- espousing the same things. But I love the first, I'm just going to read this because it's the first sentence of her book. She writes a 442-page book and the first sentence is, this book is an attack on current city planning and rebuilding. I mean, <laughs> she just, it's not, there's no pretense. She's like, I'm coming for you, motherfuckers. I am attacking. This is, this is my call. And so obviously he didn't like it. I think he called it libelous. I think he said that she was, there was libel in there because she mentioned him directly and kind of like talked about some of his programs. And I think, I'll be honest, she described them correctly and accurately, but to him it was libelous because, you know, he didn't probably like seeing himself reflected that way. And then basically as soon as the book came out, very shortly after, her neighborhood, the West Village, they announced that they were going to be designated as a slum, which means that it would now be available as a slum renewal program, meaning they could just basically tear out all of the homes and every, including Jane's home at uh, 555 Hudson Street and build a housing project there, essentially, like the kinds that you see all over you know, New York City uh, from that era. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a direct res- I think that was, he took her book as as an assault, as an affront. And I think that the, he probably, being the, the shitty person he was, expedited that or made that happen to include her neighborhood. And all he did was antagonize her more. So she fought hard against that. She worked with the neighborhood and managed to get them against it. And then I think it all comes to a head with the Lower Manhattan Expressway and that that becomes... That's basically the end of Robert Moses. So she basically is the one to take him down. So he's like losing these smaller fights, but still holding on to his power. And then when he comes to the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which would have destroyed basically all of Soho, all of those beautiful buildings in Soho, these entire neighborhoods. I think it would have hit Little Italy. It would have hit Lower East Side. It would have destroyed tons of New York City heritage just to move cars through Manhattan faster, which is so ridiculous. And she, by that time, was a big enough name that she was the face of that movement, right? Even though there was a lot of people fighting it, it was a whole bunch of neighborhood people working against it. She was the face of it, and it was sort of a true David and Goliath moment that she took him down. And Robert Moses, I think, was famous for bluffing that he would resign, I guess. I think it's such a strange thing to do, but he would tell... He would go to, like, you know, the governor and be like, if, if I don't get my way on this, I'm resigning. And for whatever reason, they were like, oh, no, we can't lose this asshole. Like, wow, who would chase away all of the black people, right? And so um, I guess he finally did it. And I think it was Rockefeller who finally just called his bluff. And he was like, I'm resigning. And he was like, okay. And then he was like, oh. And that was right after the Lower Manhattan Expressway. So I do think, I think that loss in the face of Jacob's, that was the final nail in the coffin. I still can't get over the fact that he read the whole book. I mean, there's something about that. Isn't that, could you imagine someone writing a 440-page book that's just like, imagine they write a book. Ben Kirschenbaum sucks and so do podcasts about his dead historical figures. And then you read every page of that book so that you can literally cite by page and number where you think they were wrong. I understand reading a mean comment and i understand maybe even going down a rabbit hole of reading a few but you'd have to think that by page seven or eight he would be like this is not healthy for me this is not (laughs) this is not yeah but then again haven't we all read that comment thread where you're like i shouldn't keep reading but i'm gonna keep maybe it'll turn around maybe (laughs) there's gonna be the comment that saves it and then it just you get deeper and deeper and then by the end you're just like i hate everyone (laughs) 
So I like to imagine that was him reading the book. I think that's great. I would love to see him just crying. And what is it that eventually takes her out of Manhattan and move to Canada? So that's what's weird. Jane Jacobs is is full of contradictions, I will say. I mean, that's just like something about her. When I chose her for this, my thought, it, it, you know, to some degree, I see her as a bit of a hero of urban design because of who she was. And to other degrees, I think she definitely had some problem, let's call them problematic views or some stuff that, you know, some stuff that hasn't quite stuck with us uh, as much as we've had more experience with time. However, one of the strange things is she had this love affair with Greenwich Village. She had this love affair with New York City and that she passionately fought to preserve these neighborhoods and then uh, moves to Toronto, <laughs> to Canada, to another country. And the, the, I, I will say the main reason why it appears is that her family was uh, vehemently anti-war. The Vietnam War was happening and she had two sons who were of draft age, getting to draft age. And basically they made the decision that like, we're going to move to Canada so that we don't have to deal with this. We don't want to send our sons to Vietnam and they moved to a neighborhood in Toronto that I think also had like a, a reputation. It was like the American neighborhood. It was like a lot of people who were doing what they were doing, which was kind of like fleeing the draft, essentially. But it is weird. It is weird that she would stake her life and reputation on her love of New York City and then immediately leave it for Toronto, which, to be fair, at the time, Toronto was definitely not what it is today. It was a very sleepy small city. My mom's from Buffalo, and so I remember we'd go visit. I remember a time when Buffalo had more going on than Toronto. Like, Canadians would cross the border to come to the malls in wow. Buffalo <laughs> because there was so little happening in Canada. So Toronto was a much sleepier place at that time. Now it's a much more bustling urban metropolis. I get it, I get it if you wanted to move there. But yeah, it was a weird choice. She moved to basically like a relatively suburban place it wasn't suburban by like modern standards of suburban where it's like cul-de-sacs and you have to drive everywhere it was still a walkable older neighborhood but it was definitely a step down from Greenwich Village which is you know classic old world density but that's why she moved and then she basically immediately got involved there with fighting another expressway the Spadina expressway was being built so she's just perpetually a rabble rouser and I love that about her <laughs> she just showed up and she was like another and Expressway, take these mother effers down. And they did. They fought. What happened was the Lower Manhattan Expressway was one of the first successful times that people fought the building of freeways. Up until that point, you have basically, like, since World War II, you've got 20 uninterrupted years or so, more or less, where urban planners just could say, we're tearing out this neighborhood and building a freeway. Most of the freeways that exist today through cities were built in that era because people had very few rights at the time and organizing was difficult and hard and they often chose the poorest and most vulnerable neighborhoods where organizing would be difficult. And it really wasn't until we get to like the 70s that you start seeing these freeway revolts happening and Lower Manhattan was one of the first. And then you have the, the freeway revolts in Toronto, but you have it in every city. And so that's basically what kind of stopped if you look at any city in the U.S., you can see uh, proposed maps from like the 50s and 60s and what's there today. And you, in most cases, less than half of it ever got built because you would have had to have destroyed even more neighborhoods and people just stopped putting up with it. They were like, this is not worth it. I think they also saw that they were built on a lie. That like the lie that was told to people like Moses and these other people said was, we're going to build these freeways and you'll never have to deal with traffic again. That was the pitch mm. at the time. I know that sounds insane now. We all know that's insane. Because freeways are always full of traffic. But the idea was, oh no, traffic is because of city streets and pedestrians and crosswalks and the fact that you can only go 25 miles per hour. We're going to put you on highways so that then you can all just be stuck together on a fucking highway. 
but people bought it at the time. They thought, you know, during the 50s and 60s, they were willing to buy into it because they thought that's what it would be. And to be fair, when you first open a highway, it usually isn't full of traffic because you basically induce demand. Once you build the highway, then what that says is, great, oh my gosh, now there's a highway, we can build more and more suburbs and more and more people can buy cars and then they'll use that highway. And so you end up inducing the demand so that all of these highways are choked in traffic by the 70s which also kind of helped. So it's not, I'm not going to say like Jane Jacobs ended highways by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think the Lower Manhattan Expressway showed that you could fight them. And then the public opinion just quickly turned because people were like, these things were not what we were sold and there's too high of a cost. Yeah, and you mentioned the timing of it in terms of her being a pioneer. Her most famous book comes out in 1961. So we're Mm -hmm. talking a few years, I mean, certainly one of the early examples of showing resistance to this kind of thing. Absolutely. And I mean, it can't be understated how radical her book was at the time. I realize now, anyone reading it now would be like, oh, this is just literal common sense, right? I mean, the book is saying really basic shit. It's saying like, hey, people like living in urban walkable areas. The sidewalk is not the enemy. The sidewalk is a space where really fun, exciting things happen, where you have serendipity, where you have this beautiful mix of things going on. The idea that diversity is good, right? Like that was really, honestly incredibly new, uh, not new, I don't want to say what I want to say new, that was a, um, a controversial point sure. at the time, that the idea that diversity of uses, diversity of race, diversity of origin, diversity of everything, age, all of it was healthy and good and that we should be trying to foster that instead of hinder that. She was speaking up against an orthodoxy. There was an orthodoxy in urban design that started after World War II where basically they said, we are now in a modern era. And we have all these new ideas that are totally unproven. It was just a bunch of fucking straight white men who had a bunch of big ideas with no evidence to support them. And they said, hey, you know what we should do? Let's experiment on every single American city and destroy them. Uh, That was basically what happened. And then no one questioned them because they were the only ones in the room. They weren't inviting poor people to the table or brown people to the table or women to the table. And so there was no one there to really question their orthodoxy because all of these people came from similar communities and had similar views of the world. And Jane was the first person with a, what do I want to call it, like a megaphone, with the person with a platform who basically stood up very publicly in a way and forced them to reckon with the reality of what they were doing. She was basically saying, look, you aren't actually observing the places you're building. Look at what's happening in these places you're building. Look at what's happening to the communities that aren't being touched by you and how vibrant they still are. You see slums, whereas we see vibrant, healthy communities they're poor. Yeah, they're poor because poor people exist. So unless you want to get rid of poor people or like embrace communism and then no one can be poor, you know, you're going to have to have poor neighborhoods. And the question is, do you want them to be vibrant poor neighborhoods or do you want them to be poor neighborhoods that are packed into apartment towers in a park where everything's separated and now they're completely detached from their communities? That doesn't sound better. That's just different, worse. Another thing I found super interesting is that she does connect it also to safety. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. That was like the big thing at the time, right? White people were leaving the city partly because they were afraid of brown people, but also because there were issues of crime. And this idea was these brand new suburbs. Yeah, if you move to a really rich suburb, it's probably going to have less crime than a big, busy, vibrant, bustling city. And I think a big part of her work was kind of almost convincing people that cities were safe, that cities were safer than they realized, and that the things that we looked as to as dangerous were actually safe. So like the big thing for her was this idea of eyes on the street. That's like a phrase that she coined that I think is very heavily associated with her. 
And it's this idea that cities are safer, places are safer when you have more eyes on the street. You have people out there observing the, I mean, and, and I think we feel that today, right? I mean, it's like, I know for me, I'm a guy, I don't have to have a fear, too much of a fear of, of assault or whatever, but especially talking to female friends and stuff, most people feel safer when there's lots of people around. It's like there's less, you're less likely to be assaulted, you're less likely to be robbed. Uh, when there's people around. I feel much less safe. I used to walk home from the subway, or from the L train stop in Chicago when I, I lived there for 10 years, and I would walk through an alley that was always empty. And I hated that feeling of walking through there. I also hated, it would, it would happen once in a blue moon that I would get off the train and a woman would get off in front of me and we would both go to the same alley. And I didn't know what to do because I wanted to be like, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm, a, I'm First of all, I'm a homosexual. Second of all, I'm just not a sexual predator but how do you say that to a person without freaking them out saying it makes it worse yeah <laughs> yeah it's like hey we're gonna be in for a two minute walk down this dead abandoned alley and i'm not gonna hurt you and so what i would usually do my tactic that actually i think it worked pretty well is i would hop on the phone and have a fake conversation with a gay friend and i would like play up the gay angle a little <laughs> bit so that she would feel safe like i would just pick up the phone and i'd be like oh my god drag race tonight i cannot believe it Jinx Monsoon is a goddess. <laughs> and then I feel like that would kind of put them at ease. Although I don't know if that's a tactic I should put out there because then I guess straight men could also do the same or predators could do the same thing. But uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, that, sure, I don't think anyone... Putting it out. Sorry, this is very non sequitur. <laughs> but the point being that eyes on the street is important. Having people around and seeing you is important. And that's something you get not just from dense cities, but dense cities that orient themselves towards the street. That was the other thing. It wasn't just density. It's that streets are so critical. And that when you orient yourself towards the street and towards the sidewalk, it just puts more eyes there. And then even in the rich neighborhoods where there's fewer people on the street because you don't have as many like big families where the kids have to go outside and play or whatever, you know, the people have bigger homes, you have doormen and those are hired eyes on the street, right? So it's this idea that like anywhere you go in New York City, for the most part, people are going to create safety where there are lots of people constantly around. And that that is a good thing. And that basically everything that the kind of newer designs of this a city in a garden, Robert Moses type of design, was meant to kind of break that and make homes be more dangerous and have less, fewer eyes on the street and fewer places where people could walk safely. So yeah, I think that was a big part of it. And the reason why I mention is because it feels like if you're trying to sell the idea that the safety angle would be very effective. Yes, I think that, I mean, I'll be honest, the safety angle, if you, I mean, to this day, I still have people, I lived in Chicago for 10 years. I still have people uh, who will say to me stuff when they're like, oh, you lived in Chicago? They're like, oh, wow, did you ever get shot? Have you ever been robbed? And it's like, look, I'm not going to say that stuff doesn't happen. I was also very lucky and fortunate to live in neighborhoods where, where the crime rate was significantly lower. But I do think it has always been true that in the minds of, and I will say this is particularly true of middle to upper middle class white people, crime in cities is an exaggerated thing. It's not that it doesn't exist, it absolutely exists, it absolutely is bad, and it happens in some neighborhoods worse than others, but I do think we've always had this sort of inflated sense of the danger, and a very deflated sense of the danger in other places. Like, I, the number of people I know who live in suburbs and are like, oh, it's perfectly safe here, and you look at crime maps and you're like, it's, it's only a little more safe, <laughs> like, it's not that different, you still have violent crime in those places you're most likely to be murdered by someone you know. And so it's like, that's going to be wherever you live. It doesn't matter. You can't escape that. It's like, yeah, there's maybe like the random shootings on the street that happen in a city of 3 million people. But I do think that that's like a perennial, the idea of safety is perennial. And I think it's not a surprise that 
as major cities got safer in the 90s is basically when middle-class white people felt comfortable to move back and you start seeing the flight return and suddenly you have urban revitalization and people are coming in and gentrifying neighborhoods and we get to our current state of affairs where now there's not enough of a supply. Now we have too many people who want to live in too few dense cities because we stopped building the kinds of neighborhoods that Jane Jacobs wrote about. We stopped building them in 1945 and then we haven't built them since. So we have a severe lack of supply and a very high demand because people like living in those neighborhoods. People say they want freedom, they want the convenience of a car, but that's a depressing life to me. I don't know, I've never, it's never appealed to me. I've never thought that living a car dependent lifestyle in the suburbs was a great life. And I think a lot of people think it is, and then as soon as they're in it, they're like, wow, I really wish I had walkability. I really wish I had neighbors that I was closer to. But the truth is when you build homes 100 feet apart, how can you be close to your neighbors? When every time you leave your home, you get into a private automobile with closed doors and rolled up windows, how will you ever run into anyone on the street and talk to them other than literally crashing into them? Um, isn't that the premise of the movie Crash? Do you remember the movie Crash that won the Oscar? That terrible Wait, year? but the the uh, premise of the movie Crash... Wait. Well, well, it was it was racism, but the but it was like it was there was that line that was like in L.A. It's like we're we're all in our cars, and the only times we like meet each other is when we crash into each other. Oh, I remember that? Am I making that up? I think that was a line. No, I don't think you're making that up. I don't. I, I I just remember it being one of the movies that gets made fun of that it won Best Picture. Yes, very silly that it made. That it won but Best was it Picture. just a terrible year? Well, no, it was, broke, it was up against Brokeback Mountain. Oh, that's ridiculous. Brokeback Mountain Law. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I was in college at the time. Anyway, uh, that's not the point. But uh, the idea that like when, when you build a physical space to maximize your personal independence by having a big yard and big wide set properties and a car that takes you everywhere you need to go, what you sacrifice in that is all of the livability that humans need. And I don't think it's a shocker that a lot of people that live in more suburban places have a lot of mental health issues and depression and feelings of detachment. I moved back to California during the pandemic after having lived in Chicago and New York for basically 15 years together and not having a car. And now I have a car and I live in a more suburban place. And it's just, it takes so much more work to connect with people, to get out there, to see people. I, I'll be honest. I think the number one thing that is so amazing about city living is the idea of serendipity. And it's not just city living. It's just uh, whatever you want to call it, like livable, walkable, dense living. This idea that you can walk out on the street and run into people you know or have chance encounters or have something unexpected happen. Mm -hmm. That is very unlikely to happen when everything you do is built around your car. Because other than your car breaking down or getting into an accident, there's not a lot of unlikely chance encounters that are going to happen. But what you know this as someone who's you've lived in New York and Chicago your whole life. Uh, one of those two cities, oh, except in D.C., excuse me, New York to Chicago, D.C. So you understand this, that it's like you have those wonderful moments where it's like you go out to buy groceries and you run into a friend or you're going to work and you happen to cross paths with a new person or you make, you're not going to make a lifetime friend, maybe you will, but it's this idea that you find these little moments of connection that are unexpected and that just rarely happens when your life is as dispersed, decentralized and car oriented as so many of ours are. Oh, totally. And I, yeah, as you said, as someone who's lived in big cities my whole life, it's not even necessarily conversations. I like working in busy coffee shops. I'm not even talking to any of the people. And I don't, maybe that's extrovert versus introvert or something like that, but it gives you a certain energy 
that I think probably is not as present in a suburb. I mean, we're social people. And I think there's there's something to the idea that, and this is what's interesting too about Jane Jacobs is she's hard to pin down, right? Because some of her views are kind of sound libertarian and some of her views sound kind of communist. There's these like radical views of like radical independence versus order social cultural systems, let's say. Like those two things exist on opposite ends of a spectrum. And sometimes she's on towards one end and sometimes she's towards the other and she kind of bounces back and forth. But I think there's something to that. And I think there's something to the need for humans to have, yes, we need space and independence and freedom, but we still need connection and community. And I think that connection and community is a deeply physically rooted thing. And I think when you separate it from the physical world, when you move to suburbia, especially like what, what modern suburbia, where it's especially disconnected, you know, there's some types of suburbs that I think are better designed where there is homes are closer together. There's porches that face the street. There's walkable neighborhoods. There's like a small downtown area. Those kinds of suburbs, I think, make it work better. But the suburbs we built for the last 30 years, essentially, are absolute disasters on that front because they completely disconnect us. Well, it's just so fun to talk about because I think, kind of like you said, it seems intuitive now, but the things that you're describing, particularly the diversity melting pot type of aspect of big cities like New York, where you can be in Little Italy one second and then you're in Chinatown the next second and then all of a sudden on the Lower East Side, whatever it is, I mean... I have a bit, I will admit, a bit of a, oh, New York City's the greatest type thing. Uh, I'm from New York City. I've lived most of my life in New York City. But if I ever gave an explanation for it, it would be that. I mean, th that's the argument. Well, and I think the tragedy, too, is beyond New York. If you, you can look up aerial footage of any major American city that existed in 1945 and exists today. And if you look at a map of their downtown, it looks like it's been bombed out in a war. It's honestly so upsetting to see how many cities had these incredibly vibrant, dense, bustling downtown areas. And then basically you have the automobile comes and people say automobiles are more important than people. And they basically destroyed half to two thirds of their buildings to put up parking lots. And then as soon as you do that, you literally eviscerate it. They are no longer neighborhoods. They're no longer places anyone wants to be. And now we're slowly kind of trying to rebuild those places. But once you lose that, uh, it's gone. You, you can try to rebuild something else that might look a little bit like it. But And I'm not even talking majors. I'm talking Kansas City, St. Louis, Cleveland. St. Louis in, you know, in 1945 looked like you could walk around in Midtown or, or Central Downtown St. Louis and it would feel like almost any bustling part of New York City outside of Midtown and Downtown. It was dense, it was urban, it was thriving, it was a city with so much stuff happening. And then they just completely shot themselves in the foot, uh, as every city did, because they all bought into this idea that cars were king and that everyone needs to have a car and every car needs to have a parking space. Otherwise, these cities don't work anymore and they dismantled their public transit systems and they built everything around that. And the shitty thing was it was an experiment, but it wasn't an experiment that was limited to like one or two cities. It was an experiment that they foisted on every city. And New York was maybe the one that was able to fight that the most because it's New York, because it was already so dense and had so many stakeholders that were against it. But in basically every other city, they were successful at dismantling all of their public transit systems, destroying those dense neighborhoods. And that part's really sad that people like Jane Jacobs weren't able to come along sooner, that like these voices weren't there earlier. And part of that was just the, there was no room at the table. Like you look at the decision making in the 1950s and it was a whole bunch of dudes who thought they were the smartest people in the world and they were ready to change the world and they didn't fucking care. And I think if you could synthesize like Jane's approach to the world, it was literally just bottom up works better than top down. 
that's like basically the crux of every one of her arguments is like solutions that come from regular people are always going to be stronger than the solution coming from the 10,000 foot view from the top because they know their problems, they understand their neighborhoods, and that was radical at the time. In the 50s, there was no other way. Top down was literally the only way that they knew how to do it. And to some degree, I think also Jane Jacobs kind of being a little bit of a, I don't want to say a troll, but like a provocateur, let's say, you know, she definitely was, did not have a lot of patience for people who didn't want to get involved. I, I think to her, the idea of like seeing an injustice in your community, seeing them just destroy your community and building a highway or doing whatever they're doing and not fighting it with all of your heart, to her, it was like a sin. I think she even said, I think she said it was wicked. I think she said, being a victim is wicked, mm. I want to say, was the words that she mm. used. And to some degree, that's victim blamey. It is. But I also understand her point that the idea is if you want a better community, you have to fight for it. It doesn't just happen. It's not like you can just sit back and be like, well, they're going to destroy our community, so what? It's like, no, you have to fight tooth and nail. And if you have a good community, you have to fight to keep it a vibrant community. If they want to tear something out and build a fucking basketball stadium or they want to come in and, and destroy it to do X, Y, Z, you have to fight for it. Now, the flip side of that, I will say, and we haven't talked about this yet, but one of the critiques of Jane Jacobs that you see a lot online, are you familiar with uh, <laughs> numtots? Did your research lead you to numtots at all? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is this would make Jane Jacobs skin crawl. I'm sure it's a Facebook group okay. <laughs> that's called New Urbanist Memes for Transit Oriented Teens. That's new. The, that's the name. Okay. New Urbanist Memes for Transit Oriented Teens. Numtot. And it's basically a Facebook group for people who, like me and like Jane, care about urbanism, care about urban design, public transportation, all of those kinds of things. And it's about 90% shit posting and trolling posts, and like 10% is like news and information about urban planning and stuff. But it's very entertaining. And I would say at least once a year, if not more, someone posts a meme or something saying that like Jane Jacobs is a NIMBY. Uh, do you know what NIMBY means? Uh, not in my backyard, I believe. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So NIMBY is like not in my backyard. And so a NIMBY is like the worst insult that a numtot can throw. I'm just using too, this is too many acronyms. <laughs> no, no, I'm following. I'm following. <laughs> okay. So like a NIMBY is like, it, I mean, it's, it's an insult, right? It's saying, oh, you want low income housing, but you don't want it in your neighborhood. Right. Oh, you want a public transit, you know, a subway stop, but you don't want it next to your home. It's that idea that like, everyone thinks these things are good for cities, but nobody wants them next to them. I'm, by the way, uh, I, I would, I'm like the opposite. I'm like, yes, put a public, put a subway station next to me. I would love that. I like the idea of an opposite too, because like when I think NIMBY, I think in theory you like it, but in practice you don't want it near you. So the opposite would be in theory you hate it, but you really want it near you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly. Now you're picking up. Yeah, so so I'm I, I, I'm more of a yimby, let's say a yes in my backyard. But yeah, I think a lot of people joke about this, and it's a joke amongst them tots that Jane Jacobs is a nimby. And I think you can characterize some of her critiques are nimby. I think what's unfair about calling her a nimby is I think context matters, and I think at the time that she was doing most of her work, at the time of life and death of of American cities, for sure. The idea of being a NIMBY didn't mean what it means today, because what you're talking about is you have hundreds of years of urban design and development that was generally very people-oriented and very people-focused. And then all of a sudden in the 1940s and 50s comes along these like larger urban planners wanting to change all of that, to wreck it and build their own new concepts. 
And I think in the face of that, yeah, being a NIMBY is a good thing, right? Like we want to be like, it's not just being a NIMBY, it's saying this is literally bad for the city, not low-income housing, but the way that you're trying to do it, mm -hmm. which is to wreck entire neighborhoods and build these towers that are offset from the street and separate uses and functions and also put all the poor people in the same projects. And I think, you know, history has proven that correct, that it's like, yeah, you that was a bad idea. Those do not lead, I don't think, any of the housing projects built in in that era today are standing as monuments to good urban design. In fact, most of them don't even exist anymore. I mean, Cabrini Green and Pruitt Igo, I mean, a lot of them have just been completely demolished because they were better as a holes in the ground than they were as actual structures. And that's not any fault to the people living there. I think it's the fault of the designers that use that as an experiment. But I do think there's some nimbyism in her critiques because to some degree she sort of fetishizes the idea of like, this community exists as it is, don't change it. We don't want anyone coming into change. And I mean, like I said earlier, the problem with Robert Moses wasn't that he had big plans. The problem was his big plans sucked. Mm -hmm. You can have big plans that are good. I don't think most cities do have that these days. I think most of the big plans coming out of New York honestly suck. I think Hudson Yards is a piece of shit. I think a lot of this stuff sucks. And I think most of it just has to do with money, that it's like you need way more housing, you need way more low-income housing, rent-controlled housing, public housing, all of it. But I don't think that means that you don't plan. It's not like, oh, we shouldn't have any planning. All planning should be local. Because I do think when everything becomes local and put in local control, yeah, then the NIMBYs win. Then you do have that problem of... No one wants that public housing project in their neighborhood because property values. And it's like, no, to some degree, you got to build it, right? You just got to build that public housing everywhere you can. You got to build that low-income housing anywhere you can. And it belongs in neighborhoods where it's the least present. So if you have an upper middle class neighborhood, that's the place that needs the low-income housing the most because people should live in diversity. And that's where I think Jane Jacobs got it right and where her nimbyism isn't a valid critique which is she did believe in diverse neighborhoods, racially diverse neighborhoods, right? neighborhoods that are diverse by socioeconomic status. And so I think it is tough because you've seen people use her words for and against urban development over the years. And it's funny how people on opposite sides of the same fight will literally use different Jane Jacobs quotes and sentiments to imply that like she would be on their side. And it's interesting because I, I do think you can make those arguments on both sides. But I think at its core, if you break it down, what she was for was for robust, vibrant, dynamic cities that are walkable, that are street-oriented, that are diverse. And I don't think she would be an MB in, in that sense today. I think looking at cities today, I think she would be the kind of person who would say, yes, of course development is needed, but don't wreck a whole, don't destroy an existing block to put up towers, build infill. You have all these neighborhoods with parking lots that were places we destroyed in the 60s. Great, start there. That's where you can start building the housing. But yes, of course, make it low income. Of course, make it public. Of course, make it assisted. Of course, have senior living facilities and have homeless shelters and all of that should be intermixed. And I think that would be the spirit of what what she would fight for. All right, Jed. Well, uh, I like leaving it on that note and also on, you know, on a note that kind of is applicable today so thank you so much for being on my pleasure sorry if i just talked a lot about urban planning and design uh it's uh it's a passion it's a passion of mine thank you so much Jed. yeah of course